to walk through verses 1 through 10 as God allows us to do that. But uh, the prayer that we've been focusing on the last uh, four weeks of this study uh, has been uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. So I think we have that behind me, and I would like us to read this prayer together right now. Let's read it. Father in heaven, we ask that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul talks about a really hot topic, and that topic is you. <laughs> and if you want to know just how hot of a topic you really are, imagine me putting a collection of pictures out in the foyer and you taking time to go and look at those pictures, those photographs. Who do you suppose is the first person you're going to try to spot? <laughs> you. You are a hot topic. <laughs> That's right. And he begins this way by saying, as for you, you were dead. And that word dead is the word necro. It's, it means a corpse. It means to be separated from life. If God is the source of all life, then it means to be separated from God. Friend, we don't need another spiritual guru or another spiritual teacher. We need one who can give us life at the core of who we are because apart from God, we're dead. So you were dead. In your transgressions, the word transgressions means in your slipping away, in your deviating from course, and you are dead in your sins. The word that's used here for, for sin is the Greek word harmatia. It means to miss the mark. It means to fall short of. Our English word obviously doesn't come from harmatia because we get it from an old English, English word that would uh, be used from referees at an archery contest, let's say. And if you shot an arrow at the target and that arrow felt sh fell short of, of the target, the distance between that target and where the arrow fell would be considered the uh, sin mark. So the reason we point that out is, is because uh, to think about ourselves and having the struggle with sin, being dead in our transgressions and sins, we're not saying that, that you're an axe murderer. We're not saying that you're a robber. We're not saying that you've done some horrible crime or committed theft or rape or anything like this. But we're saying just like everybody else, you have a sin nature handed down to you from your forefathers. And because of that bend towards sin, sin nature, bend towards sin, these are words that we use. Our life and actions, no matter how hard we try to do the right things, fall short of the glory and splendor for which God has created us. And I love the way David describes it in Psalm 51 when he says, Surely I was sinful at birth. But then he takes it before that. Not only was I sinful at birth, I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. From, from the moment that sperm hit that egg, <laughs> I had a bend towards sinning. And when I think about this, I'm reminded of my buddy Pete, the guy that I credit for my coming to faith. Uh, he got married Really soon after high school, him and his wife Lisa began to have kids right away. 
And uh, his little guy, Paul, he's a great guy. You know, Pete was an F-16 pilot, and his son Paul's now an F-16 pilot. I mean, what a great deal. He loves Jesus, you know. But that little guy couldn't have been more than a couple of months old, and Pete saw something in him that he knew was part of the sin nature, and he corrected that little guy, and, and, and he looked at me, Pete looked at me and said, don't let him fool you. He knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> I just love that. It has stuck with me. Because although we try to convince ourselves that those little ones are the image of innocence, it ain't true. Huh? There's this little bend there, and wise is the parent who will recognize that stuff early on and deal with it because typically we wait until it's out of control in those adolescent years and we wonder what happened, but to be honest with you, we were closing our eyes all along the way trying to convince ourselves that that little sucker was a saint. <laughs> uh, that's right. Oh, dear. <laughs> Oh, so we fall short. To fall short includes this idea that you may be a sinner, and you definitely are without even wanting to be. I mean, you might be on a mission to, to, to work as hard as you can to hit the mark, but no matter how hard we try on our own effort, we fall short because dead people can't help themselves. Yeah, we need help. Dead people are just dead. <laughs> Isaiah 64 says this, our righteous acts. And when you see that, you know, it's a nice spiritual word, our righteous acts. Just write in there, the best we can possibly do. Right? Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Oh my goodness, you kidding me? The best we try to do amounts to nothing more than a pile of filthy rags. Well, consider, we've got our ulterior motives for what we do. Uh, we're looking to glorify self. And if we're not doing what we're doing out of faith in Christ, then we're probably doing it out of faith in our own flesh. I'm a pretty good guy. Notice me, God. I'm doing all right. I think I'm a little bit ahead of the pack. Oh, I know I'm not as good as that person over there, but I'm certainly not as bad as that person over there. And in doing that, you just wiped out a whole bunch of people by judging them. Because you've declared I'm better than them, so surely God will have favor with me. And the whole time you're closing your eyes, your ears, your mouth, shutting it all down and saying, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. <laughs> and you've got this nature that needs to be dealt with. A plane en route to Hawaii crashes into the Pacific Ocean about a thousand miles from shore. Three guys survive. One of those guys, an amazing swimmer, can swim an entire five miles. Another guy can go 15 miles. The third guy, unbelievable, can swim 50 miles. But the tragedy is even the best swimmer is still 950 miles from shore. They're all sunk because they all need a rescue boat. My friend, Jesus is the rescue boat. And he's there for you to deliver you from those things that are holding you back. And that's why it's important to know scriptures like Acts 16.31. In fact, let's read it, uh, Acts 16.31 together. I think we have that up there. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. How about, uh, I guess we maybe we don't have these, John 1.12. There we go. Let's read that together. Talking about Jesus. Yet to all who received him. 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Yes, Jesus would have never have died on that cross if he didn't have to, if you could be good enough. Back to our text. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in, in, in which you used to live when you followed. And that's the NIV. You know, if you get out the King James, it does a little bit better with this. It says walked in or walked in. But really, that doesn't do a good job either because it, it means to tread around or to wander aimlessly, get this, as a way of life. Not just something you did once or happened to do, but as a pattern that God sees. So walking around aimlessly in the ways, and that word ways in the King James is coarse, and I like that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. In the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Uh, to meander. You know, maybe it's a man thing, uh, but when I go into a public building, I have learned that I have got to move forward with confidence, acting as if I know where I'm going, whether I know where I'm going or not. Because the moment I look like I'm not quite sure, someone's bound to be there asking me that horrid question, may I help you? <laughs> First time I went into the, the medical center of the Rockies. You know, that's been open a little while now, but, but it was ominous going into that place. I walk in the door, and immediately I'm confronted with all sorts of stuff that I'm not familiar with, and I just must have had a moment of hesitation. I paused. I wasn't moving forward with a confidence that I so trained myself to walk forward with. And here we have this new group of, of volunteers there on the left side who are kind of overly zealous about protecting their new hospital. And they see me there, and they ask that horrible, what is that horrible question? Yes! And because of that question, even though someone, in fact, it was one of you, even though one of you was expecting me to come and visit you and pray for you, I never made it to your room. It just supports the fact that uh, I've got to move forward with confidence whether I know where I'm going or not. And even if I'm wandering for a long time, it's a whole lot better than having somebody ask that question. But the, but the fact is, this is the way we do life. I mean, we move forward with confidence, particularly when those religious people want to talk to us because we don't want them talking to us. And so we've got to keep moving with confidence, not even willing to recognize that we're being tossed and turned by the world's philosophies. And that's why I highlighted that word course right there because that word course can be used to define what a weather vane does. It's got nothing on its own. It goes wherever the wind blows it. And that's a philosophy that some of us in this room were brought up with. You know, baby, go where the wind blows you. And consequently, we find ourselves empty, frustrated, wondering what this life is all about. Uh, and uh, just wanting to kind of say this is a pathetic existence. Mom says to that little one, no. And the little one shoots back and, and cries, why, mommy? Everybody else is going. Everybody else is doing that. And the mom comes back with, well, if everybody else were going to jump into a fire, would you jump into a fire? Because, friends, any dead fish can float downstream. 
Huh? But Jesus gives us focus. Jesus gives us purpose. And this is why we have that one application that usurps all other applications around here. What is that application? That's right. Keep your eyes there. Amen. Now, the spirit who is now at work in the lives of those who are disobedient, is that saying that everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is, is, is demon-possessed? No. But what it is saying is even though you claim to walk in freedom apart from faith in Christ, you're not as free as you'd like to think you are because there is a master puppeteer who's pulling those strings and the way he works them is to keep you focused on yourself instead of the eternal glory for which he has created you. And that's his great tool. His great tool is to keep you exalting the flesh, like God's going to keep something away from you. And so we do this life of miserable existence when God says here, I have so much more for you. But we in our stubbornness hold our position because there's no way that I'm going to surrender to that God. Now, shame on the church because it gives the message that all God is about is a whole bunch of rules. But my friend, the message of God at this moment is the good news of the coming kingdom that you can live with a confident existence that you don't have a temporal purpose, but you have an eternal purpose. And in that eternal purpose, uh, God wants to use you to help others experience their eternal existence as well. Can we get an amen there? Back to verse 3. Excuse me just a moment. You know I got home at midnight last night, didn't you? Because Doug, I was playing with Doug. We, we were at a men's retreat out in Nebraska and suffering horribly, horribly. Oh, my goodness. We had uh, ribs and, uh, what was that on Friday night? Ribs and, uh, I don't want, brisket. Yeah, ribs and brisket Friday night. We had steak for lunch yesterday. Not leftovers, freshly smoked steak for that day. And we concluded last night with these thick prime rib. And I even went back for a second thick prime rib. <laughs> and we got home at midnight. So I'm, I'm just trusting God that in my weakness, he's made strong this morning. All right? This is his moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And our guys, the last three years, have won pies in the competitions. And last night, we had two pies. And so we washed down our prime rib with pie. Yeah, we're, we're into the whole cardio thing. <laughs> Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. Uh, that word, the way it's used there, means in the lifestyle of, okay? So we lived in the lifestyle of them at one time. So you say, well, what is that lifestyle? Well, we've already defined it, but it's right here in Scripture gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. That's talking about of our flesh. <laughs> I just talked about three meals of steak. <laughs> yes, baby, I'm in full obedience and surrender, and this is where it led me. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and following the desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were natures of wrath. So what you need to notice here is a, is a couple of things. that Paul has now shifted from that very popular subject of you and now he's including himself so please consider for a moment who is saying this this is the apostle paul 
This is St. Paul who's talking about his own struggle with the flesh. This is a guy who prided himself in his heritage, in his religious past, and he describes his pre-Christian experience this way. This is from Philippians 3, 4, and 5. Listen to Paul's pride here. Or, you know, now this is his past that he's talking about. But he says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh. See the tie here? Yeah. I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And Paul's saying that in his past religious experience, he had all his T's crossed, all his I's dotted, and he's saying that his whole purpose in doing it was to exalt flesh because he had cause to boast in the flesh. But then you read on there, and he says, but whatever was to my profit, and that would be by a worldly standard, he says, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, if you read on in there, he, he talks about all that stuff being rubbish. The King James actually gets it better right there because it uses the word dung, and yeah, what do you think of when you think of dung, huh? Yeah, let your brain go there just for a minute because he's talking about his past. But what's fascinating to me is that the Greek word used there is the word skubalon. And you know what that reminds me of? I mean, let's put it like it is. He's saying all that stuff was scooby-doo-doo. <laughs> huh? Do you see it? Yeah. Is it possible that much of what goes on in the name of personal goodness and in the name of religion is nothing more than another effort to appease the flesh. And the Apostle Paul says yes. And for that reason, he says that as a religious person, as an ethical person, as a person on the mission to do the right thing, he was missing the mark all the more. And not only was he missing the mark all the more, but he's saying that he was no better than the person who professes no religion at all. And so by way of application, I had to put Philippians 3.10 here. And I know we're not studying Philippians, but this all works together in cross-referencing and understanding our Bibles. Look at this. Is this your prayer? I want to know Christ. Anybody there? I mean, you know him. Anybody want to know him more? This is the Apostle Paul, the converted one. He's saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Oh boy, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Does anybody want to know Jesus this way, this morning? Yeah, yeah. So then someone's sitting there saying, well, does this mean that Christians are the only ones who do good. No, this is not about glorifying any person. This is about understanding the God who is good, who wants to manifest himself to those and through those who are surrendering to them, allowing Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to have full reign so that in the end, when somebody does something and they do it with no selfish purpose whatsoever and someone notices all they can say is, don't look at me, bro, because I know what I am. Look at him, and please see him. King, uh, uh, verse 4, 
The King James here has two words to start verse 4, and they are worth pointing out because those two words are the words, but, but, but God, but God. You see what's happening? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were hopelessly lost, trying to appease the flesh, but God. We've had a black past, but now we see God's amazing bright future. We've lived in failings of the flesh, but God is victorious over all these things. This is where he moves. I try to satisfy my flesh, but God. I am an object of wrath, but God. I am envious of others, but God. I am prideful, but God. I am selfish, and I have selfish motives, but God. I am prone to wander, but God. I am dead, but God. And but for God, there is no purpose for living. There's no real reason to get out of bed in the morning. There's no hope, no future, no marriage, no relationships, no miracles, no transformations, no healing, no deliverance, and no life. And thank God for those words, but God. But God. The NIV puts it, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, and God is portrayed so often as just ready to slam you and judge you in a moment, but you need to hear the message of the good news of the kingdom in all that. It's all there for a purpose, to consider how merciful he is, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And so today's text here we see uh, moves us from the spiritual dark place, from this place of death to a place of life where the sun, S-O-N, is rising. Hmm. It, it pointed me this week to what God said to Moses when he sent him to Egypt to, sent the children of Israel, to set the children of Israel free. He said this, I will be with you, Moses, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, so out of their bondage and out of their darkness and out of their death, you will worship God on this mountain. So here you'll discover light and freedom and uh, become objects of worship. This is where you'll discover life. And so God's goal in all of this stuff to tell, tell us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins is for the whole purpose to get us focused on this incredible goodness that God is extending for, toward us. He's rich in mercy because his heart's desire and really uh, what he really loves is not to give us the penalty that we deserve, but to save us by his grace, giving us a gift that we've done nothing to deserve, and he makes us alive even in the midst of our rebellion. That's why we have verses like 1 John 4.10. Let's read this together. I think we have it. Let's read it. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we have to read John 3.16 here together too from the NIV. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yet too often people actually believe, and I've been there too, that God will love us when we become lovable. And that, that's not what it says here at all. It says God started loving you when you were at the height of your rebellion. And the reality is there never was a moment in all history and before history and in all time 
beyond what we could ever imagine when God didn't love you, and there will never be a time when God stops loving you. This is what we need to hear this morning, because what it does is it says, you mean he accepts me this way and allows us to surrender to him. Oh, happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated, with, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So now think about this, okay? In verse 2 from the King James, I pointed out to you that we were walking aimlessly. We were meandering in the course of the world like weather vanes, okay? Now here we see that we're sitting. This is a throne, this is a position of confidence. This is a place of rest. So because of the power of God at work in us, we're no longer meandering, but we're sitting with strength with our Lord. Okay, very important. Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages, for all times, he might show or that he might put us on display for all to see this way so that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us his kindness to us in Christ. That's what it's all about. You are a living example that God is alive and well and making a difference in the lives of those who are trusting them so that the rest of the world can have hope as well. And yet so often the church seems to want to forget the good news of the kingdom and focus on how bad you all are and ask questions like, why do people do the things they do as if they're these little innocent babies that aren't innocent? And that's the trap of the devil. But notice three actions in starting in verse 5. It says, he made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated with us with Christ. When it says that, in our religious brains, what we do is we think, okay, so that's sometime in the future after the rapture. Then we can begin enjoying all this stuff. And God's saying, no, 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 read the book. It's starting right now so that you can operate out of it so God can put you on display so others can see the power of God at work. And if we're to list out what those things are, this is what we've been studying for the last three weeks, that we're blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, that we have access to God through Christ, that we now operate out of our eternal inheritance right now, that we are set free from sin and death and the bonds of all that, that he has revealed to us the mystery of his will so that we are now fitting into his plans and that we now exist for his praise and his glory, meaning that again we're put on display and not only that, he sealed us with the promise and assurance of his Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about here. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the statement that goes against all the religious systems of the world. The man saying it is Paul, a very religious man, who had caused to boast in his own flesh, boast on this grading on the curve theology that I'm not as bad as him but I, I and I realize I'm not as good as him and in the course of that we're wiping out all of these people with judgment people that God wants to spare and to save and we're living in all these 
game saying, notice me, God. Did you see me doing that, God? You know, give me another cookie because I've just earned it. And Paul says he counts all of that as Scooby-Doo. That's right. Yet there's absolutely no room here for human effort. In fact, God even seals it by saying there is no room for any of us to boast. No room for us to compare ourselves and wonder, why can't they see this glorious life that I've chosen? If there's room for anything, it's compassion. Lord, show yourself to them. Let me be an instrument that shows your compassion to them. Because no one receives a gift and says, thank you very much for that gift. How do I repay you? Instead, you receive that gift and you graciously say, thank you. And God has given the greatest gift of all times to the application. Rest in that goodness. Worship him. Surrender to him. And you will be amazed how he uses you. Verse 10. For you. For we. Paul's still including himself. For we are God's workmanship. His, the word there is poema. Poem. You are God's poem. You are a work in progress. You are a masterpiece. It's, it's a reflection of what he's doing in the lives of those who put their trust in him. Yet we look in the mirror and all we see are our failings and our shortcomings. We're minded where we don't measure up because we've heard it our entire lives, not only from the voices around us, but from the voices in the spiritual realm, the voice of the enemy who wants to accuse you to keep you from living fully in all that God has in store for us. God says, stop focusing on your badness and focus on my goodness. Stop focusing on your failures. Start focusing on my victories because I, friend, am everything you ever dreamed to be and more. And when I'm operating out of your life, you'll be surprised by glory. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God now wants to use you in the process of helping others become his masterpiece as well. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you hear do you hear that your life is not an accident? It's not a mistake, but you were created with great intention and great purpose and that that's all about surrender and not about convincing anymore? And that's why I love the fact that you can define all religion of the world with this little word, D-O. Just do enough and maybe God will accept you. Problem is, when do you know that you've done enough? Huh? And, and is the tool really measuring others so that others feel condemned by your personal goodness? And doesn't the scripture say that we can't do enough anyway because even the best we do only amounts to a pile of dirty rags? Huh? Christianity is different from all the religions of the world because Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Your future hope of glory is grounded in what God has already done at the cross. So stop the game, stop the fighting, stop the convincing and the arguing. 
put out all those other voices and hear the Spirit drawing you to Christ and live there. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving me even when I was dead in my transgressions and sins. Thank you for reminding me that you have a work that you're doing in me and through me. I surrender to you. I place myself on your altar, trusting you to do the best work. I worship you, Lord, in that end. How great is your love. How great is your love. Thank you. Just let God work in your heart for a moment.